with the COVID-19 public health emergency, PHE, set to expire this year, ending the federal guarantee of continuous Medicaid coverage during the pandemic. States are once again required to check eligibility for everyone enrolled in Medicaid, including kids. Some 40 million children enrolled in Medicaid or CHIP nationwide are at risk of losing their health insurance during this transition back. In California, 5.7 million children are covered by Medi-Cal, Medicaid slash CHIP in that state, a major source of coverage for children of color. The state estimates two to three million Californians will lose their Medi-Cal coverage, including between 800,000 to 1.2 million kids losing their Medi-Cal coverage. In other states, the statistics are about the same, with a large number of the children that will lose the Medicaid coverage being children of color. Speakers on this segment of the show, during a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services, will explain what the stakes are for children's health and what the state is doing and what the community can do to help children stay covered. California's AB 2402, guaranteeing multi-year continuous Medi-Cal coverage for zero to five-year-olds offers a long-term model Speakers on this segment of the show include Myra Alvarez, Children's Partnership, Christina Moreno, California Department of Health Care Services, Yingji Hong, California Department of Health Care Services, Georgina Maldonado, Executive Director, Community Health Initiative of Orange County, and Juan Alcar, Georgetown University Center for Children and Families Research Professor and Executive Director. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. Hi, I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to the Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we
real tight and you just won't know. Cool in the gang, hold on. Moderating the press conference is Ethnic Media Services Associate Editor, Sunita Sirachi. We begin the segment with Myra Alvarez, President of Children's Partnership, a statewide advocacy organization in California. Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Myra Alvarez, and I am proud to be the president of the Children's Partnership. We're a statewide advocacy organization focused on advancing child health equity here in California. Before I start my official remarks, I wanna begin by thanking you for the work you do to inform our communities. The last two years have been incredibly challenging for communities of color as they've been hardest hit by COVID-19 and have also had to remain on the front lines of, uh, of, of keeping our economy open. Just these past two weeks have been especially difficult for our communities, our Black communities, our Asian communities, and so many others. And it all impacts their health, their physical health, their emotional health, their mental health, and of course, that of their children. So today, as we're gonna work together to call for solutions that provide for families hardest hit by this pandemic, we cannot overlook the essential role that health insurance coverage and access to healthcare plays in the lives of our children especially 
during this current public health crisis. We are currently operating under a public health emergency. It is set to expire in July, but we expect it to be renewed, which you'll hear more about uh, from my colleague, Joan Alker. During the pandemic, under this public health emergency authority, a number of flexibilities were put in place to allow communities to be supported and protected. For example, you may have heard that there were telehealth flexibilities. There were flexibilities with COVID testing and treatments and payments. And certain public programs were provided flexibilities. One of those was to allow families to stay enrolled in healthcare coverage through Medicaid without additional administrative renewals, without having to redetermine or prove their eligibility during this public health crisis. As we look to the ending of the public health emergency, again, which could come as early as July, the coverage protections offered will end and families will face these administrative hurdles again, putting millions of families across the country at risk of losing their coverage. Uh, so um, by estimates, 14 million people across the country are estimated to lose Medicaid coverage within a year after the emergency ends. That's about 7 million children nationwide who are at risk of losing this coverage, being uninsured and potentially missing out on critical healthcare needs. For the state of California, according to our own Department of Healthcare Services, which we are uh, honored to have with us today, an estimated 2.3 million Medi-Cal beneficiaries will lose their Medi-Cal coverage after the emergency ends. That would translate to roughly 800,000 and up to 1.2 million children losing their Medi-Cal coverage in California. And why is this so important to this group of reporters? This will disproportionately impact children of color who are more likely to rely on Medi-Cal for coverage. Medi-Cal is the primary source of coverage for Latinx and Native American children. 75% of the more than 5 million kids in Medi-Cal are kids of color. Gaps in coverage mean disruption in a child's health care so much so that they'll miss out on critical preventive and primary care services that are especially important for our youngest children. We're here today because we need to help families keep their children's and their own Medi-Cal coverage as we look to come out of this public health emergency. Keeping families enrolled in healthcare is essential to ensuring that their children are healthy and that their care is not disrupted. Consistent access to healthcare is necessary for all of us to be healthy and to thrive, particularly during this pandemic that we have seen has exacerbated mental health issues for our young people. Also, children still need to catch up on certain health needs like their vaccinations, their well-child visits that we know were not only missed during this pandemic, but that our state has not done a good enough job in ensuring that they're accessing those preventive services. But this is particularly important during the first few years of a child's life. Those first few years is when 90% of a child's brain development occurs. So those 
healthy, uh, that path for healthy childhood development depends on those frequent, timely, well child visits and screenings that any disruption in coverage will disrupt. So during a time when health services are helping keep our family members alive, when we all want to keep our children on the right track developmentally, keeping kids covered is the right thing to do. At the Children's Partnership, we have worked with Assemblymember Blanca Rubio to introduce AB 2402. This piece of legislation will allow children enrolled in Medi-Cal to stay enrolled without making their families jump through administrative hurdles and will keep them enrolled up to age five. Through the bill's multi-year continuous coverage, children will have the opportunity to not miss the 14 well-child visits recommended for their healthy development. We are fortunate that the Senate has included this policy in their budget priorities that are currently under negotiations with the Assembly. And just yesterday, the legislation passed unanimously in the California Assembly Appropriations Committee, and it will next be heard by the full Assembly and hopefully move on to the Senate. When three out of four Medi-Cal children are children of color, we have an opportunity for our state to advance an anti-racist approach to Medi-Cal enrollment, one that removes barriers for families and gives every child a healthy start, beginning with ensuring that that coverage is stable and continuous. And we're grateful to see that our leaders are prioritizing the health and well-being of our children and families through this bill. It's, a, it's the Children's Partnership and our advocacy partners that will continue to push for passage. But as you have heard many times, even before the pandemic, longstanding structurally racist policy and practices have created an environment where families of color experience a significantly greater degree of instability in everything from employment to income to housing. These economic and housing conditions are what heighten the risk of disruptions in health coverage and that eliminate the security that comes with having that coverage. Again, it's why during this public health emergency, our policymakers didn't require families to jump through those hoops. We know that when we combine disruptions with burdensome administrative requests to fill out forms and prove eligibility, we risk disrupting the very coverage that keeps our kids able to get those critical screenings, those supports, that care that's necessary for them to grow up healthy and thrive. And it's those first few years that provide this paramount opportunity to set them up for healthy outcomes throughout their life. And I can say, regardless of whether that legislation moves forward or not, this public health emergency is going to eventually end. And we all have a role to play in keeping our children enrolled. In addition to what I discussed at the legislative level, there are so many efforts happening on the ground in communities to help make sure parents and families are aware of the possibility that their health insurance may be disrupted and they'll have to re-enroll. You'll hear from that at the local level with, the, or with Orange County Community Initiative, but also with our partners from DHCS who will speak specifically about some programs to reach out to families. 
Myra, thank you. We have a number of questions in the chat box. I wanted uh, to ask a clarification. Um, to what extent to, does, did PHE protect undocumented families? I think that's a very important question for our reporters today. So in California, uh, depending on the age group that you are a part of, you are eligible to keep it, say, enrolled in Medi-Cal. And that public health emergency authority, uh, the flexibility allowed everyone in Medi-Cal to stay enrolled. So it wasn't whether you were a citizen or whether you were undocumented or a legal permanent resident, if, if you are enrolled in the Medi-Cal program. Okay, thank you. Um, Julia Dudley has a very good question. Julia, Julia, are you yeah. able to? There yes, you go. Thank you. Uh, my question is relative to, I'm sure you're aware of the recent hepatitis cases amongst children that is actually rising in California. Could that be one perspective that we as journalists can look at as a reason why this emergency coverage needs to continue? Thank you. It's a really good question, Julia. I think what's important, I invite my, my colleague Kristen to chime in as well. I, I think it's important, yes, regardless of the health situation that's at hand, these are emergencies, these are crises for our families. And having the security of health insurance coverage helps that family feel better about their situation, that they can get the treatment necessary, that they can go to the doctor um, without having to worry if that coverage is even there. So absolutely, I, I, I see a direct connection to the security of coverage and whatever outbreaks may be happening at the local level. Thank you. Khalil Abdullah has a question for you. Khalil? Okay, so um, I had, was wondering whether one, the data, um, what percentage of eligible folks actually use the services? I mean, we, we get a, a broad sense that yes, they're eligible, but I was wondering, are the services actually being used? Um, and then also, if you could compare California to other states in terms of how the programs are, are working on the ground elsewhere. Joan Ackler of Georgetown University who answered a question first in regards to uh, services and uh, issues in other states. In general, there's really two ways to think about your question. The first question is how many of children and parents who are eligible for Medicaid are actually enrolled? That's question number one, because a lot of uninsured children in this country are eligible for Medicaid, but they're not enrolled, more than half. And that's actually been one of the virtues of this provision we're talking about today, and I'll talk more about in a minute, is that I think we've gotten a greater percentage of children because we've kept them in coverage. And normally we lose kids due to red tape and renewal and things like that. But that was actually one of the things I, I'm going to talk about is the silver lining of ensuring that kids um, who are eligible are remaining enrolled. But the second part of your question is, are they using their insurance card, right? They have one, but are they using it and are they getting services? So I want to say two things about that. First, having the insurance card is very valuable, even if you are a healthy kid uh, who uh, doesn't need a lot of care normally, because we all know that children fall on the playground, uh, break a wrist on the soccer field, and a family is going to face huge medical bills in that situation, right? So that's very important. 
the question of whether children are getting uh, the preventive services they need, the well child care, the asthma medication, those kinds of questions. Um, I can tell you from national data, looking at children on Medicaid versus children who have private insurance, that it's quite similar for many measures. Uh, for example, well child visits, quite similar. Medicaid might be a little lower, but it's quite similar. There are areas where it's definitely lower, and one is dental care. Children on Medicaid definitely getting less access to dental care. And then we have some areas like behavioral health, which is a huge need, where, uh, frankly, children across the board are not able to access services, whether they have Medicaid or private insurance, there's a huge shortage. So you have to kind of think about it that way. Is it a Medicaid problem? Is it a healthcare system problem like the behavioral health? And, um, and of course there are differences state to state, but it's a great question. This is Althea Long, and you're listening to The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show, Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for conversation, music, and culture. And tune in to The Althea Long Show. It's a music mind walk every Sunday at noon to 2 p.m. Programming on KRDP is financially supported by Westside Blues and Jazz. Located at the northeast corner of 59th Avenue and Bell Road in Glendale. Performers include the one and only Big Pete Pearson, Beth Lederman, the Sugar Thieves, and the legendary Charles Lewis. Westsideblues.com, also on Facebook, hashtag. West Side Jazz and Blues. Jorge, could you please ask your question? Jorge Macias, La Opinion newspaper and Excelsior. The question I have is, do you really believe that Governor Gavin Newsom has the political will to do the right thing than to protect these million of children in the state of California? Myra, I believe that question is directed to you. Uh, thank you for the question, Jorge. Uh, you know, the governor has uh, portrayed incredible leadership in his commitment to children um, over, over the time that he's been in office. Uh, just recently, you know, launching a multi-billion dollar initiative to prioritize child and youth mental health and making investments in communities and in our systems to better respond. He's also created, you know, multiple efforts to support our youngest children through early childhood, early care and learning investments on ensuring our systems are better responsive. Um, so from his past actions and in his, in his budgets, uh, yes, he has prioritized children and we're looking for him to build on that. This next step really is a discussion between the governor and uh, the state assembly and the state senate. So it's really as they work to refine the budget for the next year, which we hope to finalize in June, we're hoping that it could be part of that budget. And if not, that it can move forward through the legislative process. Um, so that's why this, this, this time is particularly important, and we're hopeful that given the track record and the commitment to children, that we can see this, uh, this, this uh, continued coverage be a priority for the government and the legislature. 
Thank you. One final question for you, Myra, from Henrietta Burroughs. Henrietta. Thanks so much, Sunita. Myra, is there any opposition to continuing this type of health coverage? And also, is there specific opposition to the bill? There are people who believe um, poverty is a personal responsibility and that there should be steps that people have to prove their eligibility for their programs. What we believe keeping families enrolled in coverage, keeping our children enrolled in coverage is an anti-racist approach to Medi-Cal. It really enables us to offer that security to families. So we want to ensure that these public programs, which we have a right to, uh, are actually available to families. So there is some opposition if you are looking to you know, make people prove their eligibility for these programs or are, are concerned obviously with the cost of programs more broadly, um, those could be reasons. Now we have Joan Alcar, Georgetown University Center for Children and Families Research Professor and Executive Director. I'll, I'll just start off by saying that as we all know, and as you know, as, as Myra mentioned, uh, families have endured so much during this pandemic, particularly families of color who have been on the front lines in every way and this provision that we're talking about today has been a silver lining. It's taught us as a country that we can provide continuous coverage uh, to our families and that that's really important. At a time when families are struggling with rising food costs, with rising gas prices, the fact that they don't have to worry about half the children in the country now are on Medicaid they don't have to worry about large medical bills. And we know that medical debt is one of the leading, generally the top cause of bankruptcy. So having that protection has been really valuable. And I think it's a lesson to be learned and a silver lining of the pandemic. So we did a report uh, that we released about two months ago to explain what was going on, to talk about this uh, this upcoming event, this is really unprecedented that this is going to happen, that when the public health emergency ends, that 80 million people, including 37 million children, half the children in the US, will have to have their health insurance checked. So this is a big deal. So uh, our report talks a lot about which states children are more at risk, um, but just trying to raise the alarm bell here. And this is not a foregone conclusion. If states do a good job, then far fewer children will lose coverage. So we hope that everybody works together to prevent this bad outcome. And thank you, my colleague Oyinade. So let me just review the federal law here and where, where we got to where we are today. So we're talking today about the federal declaration of the public health emergency. Many states have also declared public health emergencies and some states have lifted those, but we are talking about a federal declaration today. And that declaration is made by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So obviously right now, 
That is Secretary Becerra, well known to, to those of you in California. But this declaration was first made during the Trump administration by Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, on January 31st, 2020. So I think that's interesting because some of you will remember that the Trump administration wasn't really talking about the pandemic or uh, claiming that it was a problem, <laughs> but they definitely knew about it because they had quietly declared this public health emergency on January 31st. <clears throat> but that alone would not result in the issues we're talking about today on Medicaid. The public health emergency, as Myra mentioned, relates to other issues, for example, authorizing vaccines through emergency use authorizations. There are lots of things tied to this public health emergency, some of the telehealth flexibilities. But what we're talking about today, this Medicaid continuous coverage provision is a consequence of Congress passing a law in March, 2020. This was the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act that was passed by the Congress and it was signed into law by then President Trump. And it provided states with additional federal Medicaid money and federal CHIP dollars, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Now, as you know, those programs are jointly funded by the federal and the state governments. And so this raised the share, the percentage that the federal government was kicking in. And remember, there was a recession then, right? We had lots of people losing jobs and businesses closing down. And this is very common. When we have a recession, the federal government provides more Medicaid funding. Now, when states accept those dollars, there are usually uh, conditions for accepting the funds. And those conditions, because we've seen this before uh, in recent recessions, include that states cannot roll back their eligibility levels for children and families and others, because that would not be good. <laughs> they would pocket the money uh, but they would cut people off coverage. So there are always these certain conditions. States can't roll back eligibility. They can't make it harder to enroll, for example, by raising premiums. But this Families First Act, because we were in a pandemic, a historic pandemic that we've never had before during Medicaid's life, really, included one additional protection. And that brings us to where we are today that people on Medicaid had to be continuously covered through the end of the month when the public health emergency ends. And uh, that's very unique. So what that means, if you're in a family, and let's say early in the pandemic, the family lost a job or they lost hours, they're working in the service industry, and their child uh, or the parent became eligible for Medicaid and enrolled, but now their economic circumstances are a little better. They've gotten back some hours, they're working more. They're just over the income eligibility level. In normal times, that child would lose their coverage, probably uh, go to the Children's Health Insurance Program, um, or if they were higher income, lose their public coverage altogether. But that has not been happening during the pandemic, regardless of income changes, 
these everybody remains eligible. Nobody can be involuntarily disenrolled. Of course, if they want to disenroll, they can, but they can't be disenrolled um, without asking. So what do we know about when the public health emergency will end? So currently the declaration that is made by Secretary Becerra is a 90 day declaration. The current declaration is in place till July 15th, 2022. But actually we just learned this week that Secretary Becerra will extend the public health emergency probably for another 90 days. We don't know that for sure, but we assume that because typically this is 90 days. Why do we know that? Well, one of the first things the Biden administration did when they took office, in fact, on January 21st, they promised states that they will give them 60 days notice if they're going to lift the public health emergency. Because as you all know, this is going to be a big deal for states to do all this work. Monday was the day that they would have had to give states the 60 day notice and they did not. They just were very quiet. So it was the case of no news <laughs> was big news. <laughs> so we know they're going to extend for 90 days. So that will bring us to October 15th, roughly. It's a little bit earlier. Now, will they extend again? We don't know, okay? But they may because their own experts are saying we're going to have a fall and winter surge. So it's possible that it will be extended again. We just don't know. But that's the current state of play. And that's the most likely way the public health emergency will end. And in particular, the Medicaid provisions will end. But there are other ways they could end. Congress could end them. And Congress could say, um, we're gonna de-link the Medicaid provisions from the public health emergency. We'll keep them for the vaccines and the other things, but we're gonna de-link this so that we know when these Medicaid rules end. And the House actually did that in Build Back Better, the reconciliation bill that is currently stalled. So it's possible. It doesn't seem likely because Congress is, you know, uh, having some challenges today, we'll, <laughs> we'll say these days. and and getting things done like this, so, but it's possible. And the third way it could end is that a state could reject the extra money. I certainly don't think California will do this. Uh, there are mutterings in other states like Texas that they might do this. If they reject the 6.2% extra money, they don't have to keep people on because that's the, that's the deal there. You take the extra money, you gotta keep the people on. So, but a state is free to reject the money. So that's another way this could end in a specific state. So I'm gonna, this is just, you will have this. I don't wanna take more time. You can see here that enrollment has gone up uh, quite a lot since this provision came into place. Um, we've talked about this. This is a really big deal. I just wanna focus on the two ways that people could lose coverage when these provisions lift. The first way is they're not gonna be eligible, okay? And I just spoke about that. A family's income has gone up a little bit. They're over eligible. In that case, the adults 
may be eligible for subsidized marketplace coverage. The children may be eligible for CHIP. So in some states like California, your Medicaid and CHIP is all one program now. Didn't used to be, but it is now. And so that's pretty easy, right? But in some states, like three states we mentioned in our report, Texas, Georgia, and Florida, they're not the same program. So making sure that the children get there is possibly gonna be tricky. And uh, particularly if the state's not trying that hard. <laughs> and secondly, um, we think this may be the bigger reason folks lose coverage is just for what we call procedural reasons or red tape. Okay, and Myra mentioned this, this happens all the time. And here's one way it could happen. The renewal letter gets lost in the mail, right? And the family doesn't renew coverage. We all understand this could happen. Um, and uh, this is gonna be probably the way that we do lose millions of, of children and parents because we always see these kinds of red tape losses. And this is exactly why the kind of legislation Myra talked about is so important because we avoid these kinds of losses. So we, I'll just wind down with this. Yet we estimate a little over 37 million children are protected and it's a little higher now by this continuous coverage protection right now. Here's the different things that could happen to them, right? Three pass, they remain eligible, their eligibility is checked, they're on, everything's fine, good. Second path, they're not eligible and they have to go to this next path. They may become uninsured if they don't have any public coverage options. They might in some states have to go to separate CHIP, which may cause some challenges, or they have to transition to the marketplace or maybe private insurance. So this gives you a little bit of a visual of the different paths that children and families will be traveling on. And you can see how it's complicated and it's gonna be especially complicated in certain states that have more complex systems of coverage uh, for children. And California does have, I believe, some premiums for the higher level, uh, higher income chip children, and that can be a real barrier as well. But we've got other states that we think have uh, even more barriers. We do rank them in our report with red flags, up to five red flags. Joan, there are uh, many, many questions for you. And speakers, um, we are running a little bit beyond uh, time, but I hope you'll stick with us. Um, so I wanted to start out with a question of my own. Will there be any grace period during that transition process for people who have to transition to the open marketplace? And where does open enrollment fit into that? Great questions. States have 12 months to go through this process of checking everybody's eligibility. They actually potentially have 14 months, but let's say states have one year to check this process. Now we hope states will use the whole year. Some states have said, oh no, we're doing it in three months. We're doing it in four months. Um, but it's important for states to take that time. Now, here's the rub. We talked about the extra money states are getting the money runs out in that quarter, okay? So let's say that the PHE lifts October 15th. People have their coverage through the end of October. So November 1st would be the first day they could lose coverage, but the state has a year, so they're gonna have till November 1st of 2023. But the money 
goes through the end of that quarter. So the money, extra money will run out at the end of 2022. So states have a financial incentive to get people off quicker than a year, if you see what I mean. And that's, that's the rub. States have a year, we hope they'll take it. On your question on the marketplace, even if it's not open enrollment, people who lose their Medicaid will be eligible for marketplace coverage. It will be considered um, a qualifying event so they can have a special enrollment period. Of course, they have to know that though, right? And that's where all of you come in, that educating families about this process, about um, it's not that easy to enroll in marketplace coverage at the best of times. And particularly for families with limited English proficiency, I worry greatly that these are the kinds of families that we're going to lose during this process. So, but they will technically be eligible. We're going to need a lot of support, community support to educate folks and uh, help them through this big transition. And number one thing right now, I hope everyone tells your readers is for families to update their contact information. That is the most important thing because a lot of families have moved around during the pandemic. And right now, that's the number one thing to do. Are you still haunted by that old love that's hanging around in your driveway? Is your front yard cluttered with the remains of your old romance? Are the neighbors starting to shake their heads because you just can't let go? Then it's time to get rid of that old car, boat, motorcycle, or anything else with a motor. And yeah, no, we're not taking your lawnmowers for a tax deduction for you and a charitable contribution for KRDP. For more information about KRDP's CARS donation program, just call 1-855-500-7433. Again, that's 1-855-500-7433. KRDP and your neighbors thank you in advance.
information, you have to have patience. Cooking relations, manifestations. Wishing I have trust in my life situation. Life is a bus that I take from the station. Am I taking to my God that is waiting? Life is a rush and it's so exhilarating. I believe in you, that's the main reason that I'm waiting. Half the battles, finding self, appreciating. Guess what I'm from? Up to new heights I've flown. True progress is shown. Though there's a heavy reference to agencies and situations in California, most states in this country are facing the same issues, and some more than others because of the political climate and party affiliation uh, that is in leadership in some of the other states. Next is Georgina Maldonado, Executive Director Community Health Initiative of Orange County. It is a great pleasure to be here um, and a privilege actually, because this is a topic of discussion that for us as a local organization who does the direct contact and direct work and advocacy with our clients in the County of Orange in California, we on the uh, we are at the forefront of all of these barriers that Myra has mentioned, that Joan has mentioned. We see this day in and day out, whether it's coverage for an adult, whether it's coverage for children. And just to go back, um, our mission of our organization is access to healthcare, access to quality and affordable healthcare in the County of Orange. We are one of, one of the state agencies in the state of California that is at the forefront of these enrollment, uh, not necessarily barriers because there's also has been a lot of open doors for more and more expansion for children and families. Uh, just to go back a little bit into history, as all of you may be aware, uh, the Health for All Children initiative was ex the expansion happened a few years ago. And so that was one of our biggest wins as a state, but also as a local community where the undocumented children were now eligible for full scope Medi-Cal. And as an organization, we were at the forefront of enrolling the children and families into healthcare coverage. 
And what we have seen is exactly what Myra and Joan has mentioned. It is the resources, the lack of communication between the addresses that are lost, the lack of understanding of the letters that are sent to our clients because they're, they're working one or two jobs maybe three jobs because they also work during the weekend. Um, the children, what we're facing is that most parents that have never navigated the managed healthcare system in our county and our state have never had benefits in the past. So how do you teach them how to navigate these benefits as we talk about the insurance card? It's wonderful to have a lot more children eligible but how do we teach them to navigate the services that now they rightfully so qualify for? The majority of them don't even know who their primary care provider is. So yes, enrollment and disenrollment is vital, but accompanying that is the navigation of services. How do I re-enroll? How do we target our, you know, identify our primary care provider? How will I identify transportation? How will we get there if the doctor opens Monday through Friday and I only have Saturday off? And so as we talk about all of the barriers that Joan and Myra have mentioned, these are systemic barriers that historically have impacted communities of color. And those are the communities and, and folks that we serve at the local level as a lead entity in the County of Orange, where we attempt to build capacity in other organizations that serve diverse communities outside of the purview of Community Health Initiative of Orange County and who, who I have invited also to tell a direct story about the barriers that our clients have faced is Maricela Carlos, who not only has been an enroller on the front lines, but also now conducts our Know Your Benefits trainings in the community. What happens after you do receive your healthcare coverage based on this expansion. And so what we are seeing with the lapse of the public health emergency is that a lot of our clients will not will lose coverage the moment it happens. Because if we're not there at the forefront with the similar messaging, with marketing, with text messaging, we will lose our community. And we will lose the health and our community that we so rightfully have expanded these policies to what you know what Myra is doing in Sacramento with the bill is vital to the continuity of care and the continuity of care really impacts the efforts as we try and build a more equitable healthcare system for all. And I want to turn it over to Maricela to share two anecdotal stories regarding two of our clients that we just faced most recently. Um, the floor is yours, Maricela. Maricela, could you uh, limit your remarks to two minutes? Thank you. Yes, really quick. Um, you know, we see families every single day with these kinds of barriers. Uh, one that stands out is a mom who had a child in care of somebody else, and she received a call that, you know, the child had gotten injured, so they needed to take them to the emergency room. She had a, um, already received the renewal letter. However, because she had, she didn't have the flexibility to request time off of work. She didn't feel comfortable filling out the information herself. She couldn't seek services like ours that we serve. 
um, she didn't know that we existed at that time. So unfortunately, when she took the child to the emergency room, they discovered that they didn't have coverage. So unfortunately, she received the bill, you know, had to go through all of that. Her friend, when she was sharing this with her neighbor, then told her about our services. And then that's when she came in, we helped her with, you know, trying to cover the bill, um, trying to informate, give her information on how to cover it. So luckily she had that resource, but not a lot of these families do. The other story that stands out is of those families who have literacy problems, problems where they receive a, verifying, a letter from social services requesting verifying documents. You know, on that letter, they specified that they needed pay stubs, um, tax information, but this family earned cash income. So their first thought was, I'm not able to provide a pay stub. I'm not able to provide my taxes. So I guess I'm not able to qualify for the service again. So not having that knowledge, you know, where we, we could help them with an affidavit. But again, because of that letter and how it's stated, um, it confuses the clients into what they can and cannot send. So if they don't have an agency like ours that can help them navigate this, you know, they're disencouraged to try and re-enroll. So those are some of the barriers that we've encountered. And now we have Jingjiao Wang, California Department of Healthcare Services. Um, I'm Gingja um, from Department of Healthcare Services, so the state Medicaid agency, the Medi-Cal at the state level that administers and provides the policy. Um, so uh, agree with um, everything our colleagues have shared um, and specifically um, for um, as we prepare for the moment um, and we know the COVID-19 public health emergency will be potentially ending this year. And the, the department is actively preparing um, for that. Um, as we have shared, um, uh, Medi-Cal renews individuals each year. With the COVID-19 uh, public health emergency since March of 2020, the annual uh, re review of your eligibility has paused. And now once the public health emergency unwinds or terminates, um, those protections are no longer there. And that requirement to review your eligibility on an annual basis will continue and resume. And so how is the department um, encouraging um, our beneficiaries um, and preparing them for the moment? Um, so we have at the department level um, started an initiative that we rolled out in April of this year. Um, they are called the DHCS coverage ambassadors, uh, which we are encouraging um, the community, our community-based organizations, our advocates um, in the community, and all the individuals that are here today with us um, to help us spread the word um, in terms of how we can push the core messaging out to our individuals. Um, for the first piece, clearly focusing on that very need for them to update their contact information, which is critical because the counties um, whom our beneficiaries usually contact with every year through this renewal redetermination process have not made contact with the counties um, to update your phone number, your addresses, um, and it's very important. We have launched that phase one of the DHCS uh, coverage ambassadors um, already in April. It's currently underway. 
Um, and we are, we have toolkits, we have flyers, um, social media, call scripts that we, I'm happy to share with you to help us spread the work, to encourage our beneficiaries um, to make sure they're keeping those information updated. And why is that important? Because as the public health emergency um, terminates, um, what's going to happen is the counties will be resuming um, sending out these packets uh, for our beneficiaries to fill out their information um, and make sure that um, they are providing the most updated income um, and whatever circumstances have changed in their lives to make sure that we are um, continuing their coverage. And I do want to say that the top goal of the department is to minimize any gap in coverage, we do not want any losses in coverage for our beneficiaries. Currently, the state is covering 14.7 million individuals um, in the state of California. 5.5 million um, of the 14 um, or so million individuals are our children. Um, and so we encourage um, as part of this overall phase one, phase two, that the families and um, and children um, do reach out to their counties um, and they usually do contact them. They could contact the counties through the phone and we will have those contacts and I could share that with you um, in terms of uh, what those materials look like. They could go into their online portals. Uh, families could go in, um, whether it be Benefits Cal, uh, My uh, Benefits Cal Win, or the CoverCal.com page. All those should sound very familiar to our family statewide, depending on which part we live um, in the state, to go in and update their addresses and their names. Because what's going to happen is if the county cannot find you or get the, the package into you and you do not fill it out um, by the renewal timelines, there is a potential for that loss of coverage to happen. And that's not what we want to see occur. Um, so we are trying to make this process um, to, as familiar as possible. Um, because many of our beneficiaries remember this from two years ago. So we are encouraging our coverage ambassadors to spread the word for us. And we have developed a lot of tools to assist that effort. That would be terrific. All right, we get to the part of this discussion where we ask each speaker for a 30 second soundbite um, from this call. So Georgina, I know you have a hard stop. Let's start out with you. Well, first of all, um, you know, uh, thank you for this again. Thank you for this opportunity to speak on behalf of our clients. Uh, what I really want to say is that this is part of the systemic barriers we have been fighting as a community to remove. If something is working, why bring back the barrier that has prevented us historically from obtaining healthcare coverage? We are at the forefront with our community to utilize our benefits, learn what we would need to do, connect with our primary care provider, because it is, it, it is a human right for each and every one of us to live a healthy life. And that is why access to healthcare is extremely important to our organization who was at the forefront of the underserved communities. And we advocate on behalf of them 
every single day and every system possible in order to remove these barriers. So thank you for this opportunity and, and I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joan. Myra, you have the last word before Sandy closes us out. Myra? Thank you, Sunita. We all have a role to play in ensuring our children and families do not lose the critical healthcare coverage that they need to stay healthy. Our children, uh, particularly our youngest ones, are depending on that coverage and the adults on their lives to ensure that they can grow up healthy and thrive. This public health emergency is not over, especially for our communities of color. And the time is now to ensure that we can keep our families enrolled and keep them prioritized um, at, in the aftermath of this emergency and as we seek to, to build back um, our communities. Uh, we all have a role to play. So thank you for getting the information out and keeping our kids enrolled. And this is the Alvin Galloway Show. And we wanna thank Ethnic Media Services for the briefing again gives us good information from experts in different areas to make good choices for our lives and our families' lives. And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. Check us out on Facebook, The Alvin Galloway Show, and our podcast, The Alvin Galloway Show, wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.